Well, good morning, church. You're alive and awake, and it's good to be here, isn't it, in God's house to worship our Lord on this beautiful day we've been gifted with. Just in case you don't know who I am, I'm uh, Reverend Tim Phelps, um, uh, an elder from our conference here and appointed by our bishop to Extension Ministry. And what that is is ministry beyond the local church. And I'm a, a hospice chaplain for Chautauqua Hospice and Palliative Care. As John Wesley talked about the world being his parish, I guess you could say for me, <clears throat> Chautauqua County is my parish in the, the ministry here in the county. It's hard to believe we're into August already, isn't it? Amazing how the summer is going along. But as we think about that, uh, this summer, during the summer months, Pastor Kristen and Pastor Bill have been preaching on various stories of Jesus from the Gospels. This morning, we're going to look at another one of those stories. It is my prayer that it will not be some ancient story. My prayer for us this morning is that it will be a life-giving story, reminding us of the forgiving mercies of God in our lives. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is my prayer for all of us this morning that God's Word, living and active, will be working in our lives. With that in mind, I'd like to invite us to just have some prayer I encourage us to pray for those around you, pray for yourselves, pray for me, that we would slow our lives in such a way that we would open our lives to the mercies of God in our lives that God has for us today. Let us pray. And Lord God, we thank you for the life you give us. We thank you for your scriptures that are alive and active and pray that they will be alive in our lives today as we hear from you. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to let go of distractions and things that we can focus on you for a few minutes this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, there's some passages of Scripture that you could turn to, open up, and start reading, and then apply it to your lives. This particular passage of Scripture that we're looking at today from John 8 is only recorded here and not in the other three Gospels. And if we were to, we were to just dive in and start reading John 8, I fear that we will miss out on the depths of blessing that God has for us this morning. Before we go there, I want to first kind of like place this passage of Scripture into a context that, of what is happening. <clears throat> so I invite you to have your Bibles open to John 8. We'll get there in a moment. We'll be there. But uh, before that, I want to uh, kind of set the background to help this hopefully come alive for us. The story we're looking at from John 8 
is placed at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, how many have heard of the Feast of Tabernacles? Few people. Really, unless you have a Jewish background or you faithfully read the books of, books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you may not know much about the Feast of Tabernacles at all. But stay with me, my friends, because I don't want you to miss out on the blessings. I don't want any one of us to miss out on the mercy that Jesus wants to offer us today. So I want to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles to help plan, uh, give the background here. It's really a biblical Jewish holiday celebrated sometime towards late September and late October. In Jesus' day when the temple was still in Jerusalem, it was one of the three annual pilgrimages in which the Israelites were commanded to perform in the temple there in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles not only marked the end of the harvest season, it also commemorated the 40-year journey in the wilderness when God delivered his people from slavery to e in Egypt and set them free from slavery there. It was an annual reminder of the dependence upon God's deliverance and provision for them. Starting on the second day of this festival, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was in the evening that they had what they called the water drawing ceremony. And I want to take a minute to talk about that because it gives us a clearer picture of what's happening in John 8. This ceremony, in many ways, was a procession. The priests would come from the temple, they would go over to the pool of Siloam, and they would draw water. And they would bring it back to the temple, and they would carry that water around the altar. And as they were doing that, they were reciting and singing the Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And they were saying things like this, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forever. And then Psalm 116, they said things like this, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. For you have heard my voice and you have heard my cry for mercy. This was a time of joy. So great that it is said that the one who has never seen the joy of the water drawing ceremony has never seen joy in their life. This morning at BPUMC, it's good to come joyfully into the presence of the Lord and to give our praise and our thanks to Jesus for his mercy, for his forgiving grace. Their joy, in many ways, was associated with Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says, with joy, with joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
This is what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. It commemorated the end of the harvest season, and it was a time of thanks for God's provision for the rain of the past growing season and of the end of God's divine judgment to provide rain for them in the next growing season. This is why they, were, they joyfully drew that water every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time of rejoicing over God's provision for the rain that came to water the crops. And it was also a commemoration of the exodus and the dependence of the people of Israel upon the will of God. You got that picture. They got the water. They brought it around the altar as an act of praise. And then each morning there was a time of worship, and the priest took that water that they had drawn, and they poured it over the altar as an act of worship and praise to God for all that God had done. Now, the seventh day, this was a long festival. The seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles was called Hashanah Rabbah, translated great salvation, a climatic day of praise to the Lord, a day that judgment was delivered. And on that final day, during that joyful water-drawing ceremony, the priest went from the temple to the Pool of Siloam, and they processed back to the temple, and they went around the altar, not once, but they went around the altar seven times. And as they were going around the altar, they were reciting Psalm 118, verse 25. O oh Lord, save us. O oh Lord, save us. Also, as part of this time of worship, they had cut willow branches and they beat it on the ground as a reminder. And as an act of worship, reminding them that of God forgiving them of their sin. It was quite an event. And I could hear them reciting Psalm 26, verse 6, which says, I wash my hands in purity and I circle around your throne around your altar, O God. In the midst of this joyous celebration, after seven days, Jesus stood and with a loud voice, he said this in John 7. If you have your Bibles open, we'll just look at John 7 for a second, then we'll get into our scripture for this morning. But it said this, on the last day of the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. I can imagine he had to use a loud voice because they were singing and giving praise to God. As he said this in a loud voice, this is what Jesus said. He said, if anyone is thirsty, 
Let him or her come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is telling them and is telling us, I am the Messiah, the Savior. I am the one you are looking for. I am the one who can quench your thirst, your spiritual thirst, and fill the empty void in your life. It was as you read and later in chapter 7, it really was kind of a divided response of what Jesus said because some said Jesus was a prophet. Others said Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. Others said he couldn't possibly be the Christ. And just like then, just like today, each one of us has to decide for ourselves who Jesus is. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Do you have a deep hunger and thirst for God? God, like what is recorded in Psalm 42, which says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts. For God, for the living God. My friends, Jesus is the only one who can quench your thirst and your deepest yearnings. Jesus is the only one who can give true meaning to our lives. Anything short of that will, will leave you empty. Are you thirsting for Jesus? If not, you are thirsting for something. Power, self-gratification, wealth, recognition, whatever it is, if it is short of thirsting for Jesus, it will leave you thirsty. It will leave you empty, unfulfilled. Do you know the Olympics started a few days ago, and last night I was just reading an, um, on the Internet an, an article from the NPO in a kind of an unlikely site uh, to read this, but it was an article on Michael Phelps, and my last name's Phelps, so why not talk about Michael Phelps this morning? But the title of the article said, The Secret of What Saved Michael Phelps' Life. He gave a lengthy description of things in his life the last few years, but back in 2014, things were not going well for him at all. He was very depressed. For a week, he was suicidal. But the mercies of God broke in through a football player, a friend, who reminded him again of the love of Christ. And a book was given to him, The Purpose Driven Life, as he on his way to rehab. And it was that book that changed his life because he realized that the purpose, the emptiness in his life, 
was only filled through Christ in him. It's amazing how God works and gives us his grace. Well, that was kind of my introduction that prepares us for our scripture reading this morning. And as we read John 8, verses 1, 1 through 11, I want us to hold this thought. Are you thirsty? And also, what are you thirsting for? I'm not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to take them a little bit at a time. So if you want, you can follow along with your Bibles and, uh, and, uh, and see what God has for us today. But looking at these first two verses of the eighth chapter of John, it says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Let's kind of get a picture of what this setting is. It's now the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day. The previous day, as we see, Jesus declared himself as the Messiah, the one who can quench our spiritual thirst, our deepest yearnings and longings. And on this next day, Jesus goes back to the temple, to the temple courts, and begins to sit down and begins to teach them. Where the scriptures say, all gathered around him. They were thirsty. They were thirsty, and they wanted to know and to hear more. My friends, are you thirsty? If so, let us take a few minutes to sit at Jesus' feet. Verse 3 says this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. I guess in many ways, using the King James language, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they were ticked. In our language, we'd say they were ticked, upset. Think about it. Through the night hours, they went all around the city of Jerusalem in search of a woman that they could catch in the very act of adultery. And as an act of humiliation, they bring this woman before this very large crowd gathered around Jesus. Certainly this was a trap for Jesus, and Jesus did not step into it. The religious leaders ignored what was written in the law. Because Leviticus 20, 
Verse 10 says this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife and the wife of his, or the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. But the religious leaders only bring forward this woman. Look at verse, the rest of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Jesus knew the Levitical law, and they had lots of laws and rules and regulations. This was the Sabbath day, and it was not lawful to write two letters on a piece of paper. You couldn't do it. But it was lawful to write in the dirt. And the religious leaders... You know, think about that. And I don't know, we don't know exactly what Jesus wrote, but I just wonder if he wrote something like, hypocrite. Or he wrote something like, what about your sin? Verse 7 and 8. When they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus is cutting to the heart, to the very core of their being, causing them to reflect upon their own lives and to reflect upon perhaps their own sin and shortcomings. Truth be told, all of us, because of our sin and disobedience to God are deserving of death, as Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. I am a sinner in need of the mercy of God. And as Jesus continued to silently write in the dirt, an amazing thing begins to happen. Look at verse 9. It says this, At, at, at this, those who heard began to, to go away. One at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. What an amazing image. This woman caught in the act of committing adultery, following the Levitical law, is worthy of being put to death, and she is left standing there in front of Jesus. 
Can you picture it? Can you picture yourself standing before Jesus? Oh my, this image gets much better. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says this, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is telling this woman, I don't condemn you. He could have, but he didn't. I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. As we stand before Jesus this morning, he's telling us, I do not condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. We've all heard John 3.16. I'd like us to recite it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, we all know that verse, but are we familiar with the verse that comes after that, the, the, the verse 17? It says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus has not come to condemn us. He has come to save us. Are you thirsty? Jesus can give you living water, the Spirit of God, so that you will no longer thirst and have that ache in your soul. As we come to receive Holy Communion this morning, uh, and if we are completely honest with ourselves, we come and stand before Jesus condemned with a sentence of death over us because of our sin, and Jesus is silently writing in the dirt. Things like this. Come to me, thirsty one, and I will satisfy your deepest yearnings. And I can picture Jesus writing these words, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Go now and leave your life of sin. The title of this morning's sermon is Rejoice with the subtitle 1 John 1, 9. Certainly, we don't rejoice over our brokenness. We don't rejoice over times when we thirst for things other than God. We don't rejoice over our sin and disobedience to God's will and way for our lives. 
But we can rejoice and we should rejoice over Jesus, the one who can satisfy our thirst. The one, and we, we can rejoice over Jesus who doesn't condemn us but, but has come to forgive us and to save us from all our sin. Hallelujah. We can get excited about this. I'm getting excited about this. I feel like it could be like the Feast of Tabernacles, dancing around the altar, giving thanks and praise to God for Christ's mercy and goodness. Rejoice. Rejoice. My friends, the subtitle, 1 John 1, 9, says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Rejoice! Jesus has not come to condemn us, but has come to save us. Rejoice! As we prepare ourselves to receive Holy Communion this morning, I invite us to picture this image or image something like this. Imagine you are standing all alone before Jesus. You are thirsty, yearning for more, more of Jesus. Or are you broken, hurting, in need of healing? Are you lost in your sin, in need of mercy and forgiveness? Picture also Jesus kneeling down before you. Right at your feet. What is he writing in the dirt for you? What is he writing there? Could it be something like, receive the living water so you will no longer thirst? Could it be something like, receive healing, be whole? Or could it be something like Jesus writing, I love you. I forgive you. As we prepare for communion this morning, I'm going to invite us to be reflective upon that, just thinking of that image of Jesus standing before you. Only you know where you are today, and Jesus knows. Reflect on that. Receive the word that our Lord is writing for you this morning. Have a moment to just reflect on that and pray, and then I will offer a closing prayer. Then after that, I will invite us to come to this meal. So let us be reflective at this time and prayerful. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy that never ends. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come not to condemn us, but to save us and to make us whole. Thank you for your goodness in our lives.
Amen.